I'm Madeline Jane Auble. Welcome to Window Dressing's very special Santa Ana Wins Halloween episode. This week, I will be discussing two of my favorite teen slashers from my youth. I know what you did last summer, and I still know what you did last summer. The first film of the franchise was released on October 17, 1997, during the slasher revival period of the late 1990s. Rife with the same rape parable-esque plot lines that Slumber Party Massacre 20 years prior made part of the teen canon. These films were for and about young girls having sex, being raped, being sluts, and or surviving. In Slumber Party Massacre, the survivor was virginal, as is the expectation of survivors. But she was also willing to show her naked body on screen. In fact, the actress who played the role of Trish, Michelle, got that part because of her willingness to do top front nudity. The killer in Massacre was a little bit on the nose in terms of rape parables. The man with the electric drill who hunts down a group of teen suburbanites when compared to urban legend inspired hook hand in the I Know What You Did Last Summer films. A drill feels a little over the top. But teen slashers are supposed to be that way. We all need big bad wolf stories to tell us what our mothers won't. Mainly that we are targeted, held accountable for the way men see us, sometimes with rape, death, or just the label of whore. The first film in the franchise, which now includes three movies and a 2020 Netflix miniseries, was based on the 1975 book of the same title written by Louise Duncan. Kevin Williamson adapted her book for the screen. The second film was co-written by the author of that book, Louise Duncan, and Trey Calloway. I will only be discussing the first film and the 1998 sequel. The third came out in 2004 and is woefully disconnected from the original, but has the fantastic title of I Will Always Know What You Did Last Summer. Always is underlined on the movie poster. That iteration takes place with a young, hot cast in Breckenridge, Colorado, and I will say it really seems like they took the location very seriously. The cast indeed look like locals, and it has a real libertarian vibe to it. The miniseries is really good, but the core messaging is far from the original and out of place in this discussion. The costume designer for I Know What You Did Last Summer was Catherine Adair, who, among many other things, costumed Desperate Housewives later in her career. She made this film iconic. I had just turned 13 when it came out, and I tried desperately to duplicate the outfits, still not understanding how Jennifer Love Hewitt did the too small baby blue knit tank with so much little girl lost turned badass sex appeal. It was Sarah Michelle Gellar's character, Helen, though, that really turned my head. Her beauty queen tiara worn with a letterman jacket while smoking cigarettes is the most exciting combination of teen dream iconography I had seen up to that point in my life. The costumes were better than any other element in the film, whereas the sequel, which we will get to, does not have the same staying power in terms of dress. The key hairstylist was Lisa Marie Rosenberg, now Lisa Marie Alpert. Lisa Marie also worked on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Sarah Michelle Gellar's most well-known role. The key makeup artist was Bonita DeHaven. She worked on Thelma and Louise in 1991 and many Jennifer Love Hewitt projects, including the 2005 series Ghost Whisperer. Later, she would go on to work with Jane Fonda in Grace and Frankie and Jane Fonda in Five Acts, the HBO documentary. 
I Know What You Did Last Summer focuses in on the high school graduation summer of four friends. The main being Jennifer Love Hewitt's character, Julie James, who is dating the poorest of the group, Ray Bronson, played by Freddie Prince Jr., who in real life is married to Sarah Michelle Gellar, who plays Helen Shivers. Helen is a beauty queen, literally, and is dating the popular rich kid who plays football, Barry Cox. Barry is played by the teen heartthrob of the era, Ryan Philippi. Philippi also played Sarah Michelle Gellar's lover in the 1999 adaptation of Cruel Intentions, which I highly recommend watching if you haven't. There is a cocaine cross and some highly hot corsetry. After Helen wins the crown of the local pageant, the four friends party a little at the local clam bake, drinking and reveling in the last moments they have together before their lives move in different directions. They end up at their own private beach blanket bonfire, where the teens tell the story of the hook for a hand fisherman before playing out their own cat and mouse sex games. Julie loses her virginity to Ray, who in typical good guy who will fail you fashion says, are you sure? When they walk back to Barry's fancy sports car at the end of the night, Ray, the resident good guy, insists on driving because Barry is visibly drunk. After a kerfuffle over the keys, Ray gets in the driver's seat. Barry pulls focus by drunkenly standing up with his head through the sunroof. Ray, distracted by Barry, hits something. It's big. It was a person. The group realized that because one of them was drinking, it will look like they were all drinking. So they decide to dump the body in the ocean rather than calling the cops. Long story short, the man is still alive, and he grabs Helen's giant sea-themed tiara on the way down into the water. Barry goes in after the waterlogged survivor and fetches it from his hand. The assumption is that last gasp grab was just that, and the man is dead. Next summer, the group is tormented and picked off one by one by a psycho killer's revenge plot. Julie comes back to the small East Coast port town, much changed after a year away at school. She is suffering severe PTSD, and as her mother so kindly remarks, she looks like death. I want to focus in on this comment and why it reads like a rape-adjacent victim blaming. Julie was in the car that killed the man, and she agreed to cover up their crime, but she wasn't driving, and it wasn't her car. She had wanted to go to the police, but was held in a chokehold by Barry in front of her boyfriend, Ray, and made to agree to keep the secret. The fact that the woman that birthed her is seeing her take on the traits of death is quite clearly, to me, an example of a woman being made to take ownership and suffer on behalf of a male victim and the male perpetrators. Sarah Michelle Gellar's character Helen meets a similar rape-adjacent torment in the film. Hers ends with the brutal slaying of her boyfriend Barry and her older sister Elsa. Her sister is the person that traditionally would have protected or at least warned her about men. But in this dynamic, Elsa plays for the patriarchy and dies the moment she starts to come to terms with that fact. Helen dies soon after. Only Ray and Julie survive the first film of the franchise. In a scene that takes place prior to the vehicular manslaughter, the summer of, not last summer, 
Julie, Barry, and Ray are seated in the back of a small local theater watching their friend Helen, Sarah Michelle Gellar's character, win a beauty pageant. Helen walks on stage wearing a deep V-necked black swimsuit with cutout designs along both sides of her torso. Her hair is done up beauty queen style in a half updo that is gathered at the crown with a cascade of blonde curls down her back. Think Sharon Tate in the suicide scene of the Valley of the Dolls. Speaking of Miss Sharon Tate, the conversation in the balcony that her boyfriend and best friend's boyfriend are having about her breasts is reminiscent of one detail about Tate's character in the Valley of the Dolls. Ray, Julie's boyfriend, says to Barry in reference to Helen, I had no idea her breasts were so ample. Barry responds, dude, she does these exercises to pump them up. Barry's response about the exercises directly pulls from the Valley of the Dolls, where Tate's character does chest exercises to keep her boobs from drooping. In that film, she believes she is talentless and only has a body. Her ending is a bad one. She kills herself after her husband is institutionalized and she is diagnosed with breast cancer. And don't forget the porn she has to do to earn a living prior her suicide. This is the foreshadowing we get about the fate of Helen and her character's type. She is the disposable beauty of the franchise. Whereas Julie, the smart brunette who is cool and practical, is not. Julie's response to her boyfriend and Barry's comment is, quote, Guys, I'm on sexist overload as it is. Kill the commentary. This is said with a smile, and she actually leans into her boyfriend as she says it. The remark about sexist overload made instantaneous sense in 1997, but when I was rewatching it now, I didn't get it immediately. She is referring to the fact that she is at a beauty pageant, meaning the entire event is sexist. So therefore, Helen is sort of asking for it in Julie's eyes. This brand of chauvinism masquerading as feminism is typical in the survivor female character in slasher films. And also the easy breezy brunette who can be one of the guys because she eats pizza and has low maintenance hair. Helen wins the contest and is awarded the giant sea-themed tiara, complete with seahorse and rhinestone shells worked into its design. She gives a fantastic answer to the host's question, what will be your contribution to your community and the world at large? She says, well, Bob, at summer's end, I plan to move to New York City, where I will pursue a career as a serious actress. It's my goal to entertain the world through artistic expression. Through art, I shall serve my country. Helen's response epitomizes the mastery of her powers as beauty queen. The way she says, through art, I shall serve my country, with a sultry baby voice and a serpentine wiggle is fucking perfect. It is one of my favorite moments in any film and, in my opinion, elevates this teen slasher to self-aware high camp capital A art, and in so doing makes Sarah Michelle Gellar's performance as Helen Shivers into an iconic scream queen. After the foursome has inadvertently slaughtered a fisherman via rich kid's sports car, they all come back together the next summer. Julie and Barry are home from college, and Helen and Ray have settled into the small town they are both from. 
Ray is a fisherman and Helen is working at her family's department store under her sister. It is the day before the anniversary of the murder and Helen's beauty pageant win. Helen has to ride in the parade and relinquish her crown to the new queen this year. Neither of the couples are together and none of the friends kept in touch, including Julie and Helen. That is until Julie gets the infamous, I know what you did last summer, letter in the mail. She shows the rest of the group and they all balk at it, not prepared for the revenge plot to come. That evening, Helen comes home wearing a lime green cropped top tank and dark blue denim shorts. Her hair is half up, secured at the crown with a large barrette and a Catherine Deneuve does daytime aesthetic. She is wearing an oblong turquoise necklace set in silver and she has layered mascara on her curled lashes. She walks past her father who is lazily watching baseball and actively ignoring his daughter. She stops in the kitchen on the way to her bedroom to get a Diet Coke in a can. Amazing. She then goes to her room upstairs, where unbeknownst to her or her deadbeat dad, the killer has crept into her closet to await her silently. She changes into a silk, long-sleeved white nightshirt and examines her tiara from the last year's beauty pageant. She has to give up her crown tomorrow which we learn through some expertly planted exposition by way of conversation with her cruel sister, who surprises her by coming into the room unannounced. The killer watches this scene from the darkness of Helen's closet. Helen prepares for bed by brushing her crown and glory, her hair, using a $150 Mason and Pearson bristle brush. Hair, especially golden hair like Helen's, has long been attached to a woman's power source in mythology. That connection goes back to ancient Babylonian mythology, but a readily available example in the pop culture canon is Rapunzel. Rapunzel's hair is the conduit for her escape from her literal imprisonment in her father's high tower. Hair is symbolically tied to a woman's freedom, sexuality, and ideas. That night, Helen falls asleep heartbroken while the hook-handed killer waits in her closet with a pair of scissors. He chops her hair off while she sleeps, but does not take away the dead strands. He leaves them in place along with her tiara, which he places on her head for extra emphasis, so that when she wakes in her dusty pink trundle bed, she is literally encircled with the death of her symbolic power, beauty, and will. It's brutal. She walks to her vanity mirror after feeling the dead strands fall from her head and into her hands like limp snakes in some sort of Medusa nightmare. A woman whose beauty was the reason she was cursed. On her mirror, the word soon is written in red lipstick mimicking blood. She screams bloody murder and slams her bare fists into the vanity mirror over and over again, shattering it along with her distorted image. This last moment of the scene has a real Norma Desmond tragedy to it, while still hearkening back to Sharon Tate's suicide scene in the Valley of the Dolls. It may have been intended to read as sad that Helen's power could be stolen by chopping off her hair, which is tied culturally to her beauty, which is not always seen as a legitimate or worthwhile power source. But in actual effect, this scene reads like poetic tragedy with a dash of shattered glass and teen girl screams. Sarah Michelle Gellar plays it perfectly, 
And the Mason and Pearson brush she uses the night before is such a thoughtful detail that really makes this moment come alive. The fact that her father failed to protect her, her sister failed to warn her, and the killer himself is seeking revenge for a murder that was committed using her boyfriend's car as a weapon is all evidence of the fairy tale level symbology that exists in this film. Slashers are great because they detail the female experience in the guise of exploitation, which I think is the most accurate way to write a morality play, especially if womanhood is the subject at hand. In the next scene, Julie is driving her early 1990s blue Dodge sedan to Helen's house to help her post haircut when she hears a strange scratching coming from the trunk of her car. She pulls over and gets out to investigate. She opens the trunk and finds the body of Max, a tertiary character played by Johnny Galecki, surrounded by crabs, which is what was producing the scratching noise. She is wearing the iconic, too small, baby blue knit tank top and matching short sleeve cardigan with brown corduroy pants and baby blue tennis shoes. This outfit is straight from the Delius catalog circa 1997. It is one of those looks that 13-year-old girls everywhere duplicated and then didn't understand why they looked frumpy and forgettable in it. Pro tip. Large, natural-looking breasts and a 23-inch waist do a lot for a plain Jane ensemble such as this one. Julie completes this look with layered necklaces that complement her sad girl stringy brunette hair perfectly. Julie runs to Helen's house, where Barry already is, to tell them what has happened. She brings them back to her car to show them the body, which by the time they get back has conveniently disappeared. Gaslit by a killer and feeling crazed, Julie screams that it was there. Barry doesn't believe her. No big surprise given the parallels of Julie and Helen's position with rape victims. They are not to be believed and will be incredible in everyone's eyes until life teaches them a lesson, or rather death does. Born to bear the brunt of violence and to do so silently is a woman's place, a position that is challenged by teen girls every day. In the most iconic moment of this rape parable gem of a slasher film, Julie spins around wildly in the streets, screaming to the invisible killer, a.k.a. the patriarchy. What are you waiting for, huh? What are you waiting for? Her breasts seem nearly bare in her shrunken tank and layered necklaces that suggestively bounce down her cleavage as she unleashes her rage into the air. This unfettered freedom that cannot be contained by baby blue knits is the cherry on top of this no longer virginal heroine's coming-of-age tale. Let's not forget that Julie lost her virtue, a.k.a. her virginity, to Ray the same night she helped dump a body. The body of a man hit with a car driven by her boyfriend, the same man who took her virginity. The symbolism of that is so tragic, it becomes soapy, given that it's a teen girl's tragedy. It takes on the tinge of melodrama instead of drama because everyone hates women, especially young ones. I Still Know What You Did Last Summer was released the following year in 1998. The screenplay for the sequel was written by Louise Duncan, the original author, and Trey Calloway. The film was directed by Danny Cannon, known primarily for his work on the CSI franchise. The costume designer was Dan Lester, who worked on Time Cop and some other really visually significant projects. 
For me, the hair and makeup is what stands out in the sequel as opposed to the original, whose outfits are permanently seared into my brain. The makeup artists on I Still Know were Tammy Ashmore, Carmen De La Torre, Bonita De Haven, Lalette Littlejohn, and Amy Letterman. That list does not include special effects makeup people. The key hairstylist was Lisa Marie Alpert, Lisa Marie Rosenberg at the time of shooting. She also worked on the original film and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Julie and Ray return as the main characters, but now they are joined by Julie's new roommate and college friend, Carla, played by Brandy, as in Brandy and Moesha fame Brandy. Carla's boyfriend, Tyrell, is played by Mackay Pfeiffer. They don't do great with his character, betraying the black man in the film as cavemanish and voracious. It definitely doesn't hold up. Will Benson, played by Matthew Settle, is Julie and Carla's friend, who is always lending a helping hand. I have said it once, but I will say it again. Beware the nice guy. The killer, who is believed to be the dead man from the first movie, Ben, is played by Muse Watson. I have to say, I was confused about who was doing the killings in both movies, and I have come to the conclusion that not only does it not matter, but the unidentified man with a hook for a hand killing teen girls and anyone that would protect or warn them is perfect for a rape parable. Knowing who he is completely drains the fear and transforms a slasher movie into a plain horror movie. But for the sake of clarity, Ben Willis is the original victim of the hit-and-run. He survived, and in the sequel, he is back, but this time he brought a family member along to help. Julie is at college with her previously mentioned roommate, Carla, and her new friend, Will. Ray is at home in Southport, working on a fishing boat. Julie and Ray are still together after their reunion last summer. The long-distance relationship is difficult, though, especially because Julie will not go to Southport, given the ghosts that remain in her hometown. Carla wins a trip to the Bahamas on a call-in radio show, one that called her. Jules and Carla don't question the win and quickly invite their respective boyfriends along. Ray hems and haws, tells Julie no, but then decides to drive up overnight and surprise her. Tyrell is in, and he brings Will along, too, when Carla realizes Ray isn't going to show. Carla is constantly pushing Julie to do things she doesn't want to from the very beginning, forcing her out to a club, manufacturing a love connection between her and Will, and the list will go on as I get into the scene breakdowns. Once the friends land on the island, which is only accessible by boat, they are informed that it's hurricane season and it's starting today. Disappointed but not understanding to what extent they will be trapped, they all make the best of it, which in my estimation is never a good plan. If it feels bad, leave. So many elements of slasher films are about women ignoring their guts in favor of someone else's comfort or a plan. Don't do it, ladies. The first body is discovered by Julie, and when she goes to get her friends to show them, in true I don't believe you, and I know what you did last summer fashion, the body is gone and no one believes her. This gaslight dance waltzes on for a while, until eventually everyone has found a body, the island loses power, and the group is fighting for their lives. Luckily, the hotel porter is a voodoo priest and the residential magical black man character who helps them unravel the mystery. 
which is basically that Will is Ben's son, and Ben is still alive and still trying to kill them. Oh, and Ray shows up to save the day. He was nearly killed by the daddy murderer trying to get to his one true love, Julie. Ray's hero side works in this context. I will explain why later on. In the first scene I want to talk about, Julie is back at college with an updated hair and makeup look that is more playboy than tomboy. Her clothes have aged too, but they aren't as sex positive as her sultry eyeshadow. She wears a cozy oversized beige sweater with light denim jeans and high heeled black boots. Her look is more world weary than the sad girl aesthetic of the first film. Julie comes home from class to a triple-bolted apartment door with an exterior gate. Once inside her fortress, she throws down her bags and grabs a large bottle of Evian and a bag of Lay's potato chips before getting into bed. The sun is still out, but it is clear that she has not been sleeping well, haunted by the memories of her dead friends. She picks up a framed photo of Helen, Sarah Michelle Gellar's character from the previous film, and eyes it sadly. She removes her sweater, revealing a tight white tank and her buxom babe cleavage. She then pulls the covers over her head and goes to sleep. I find the triple lock door and the bottled water under the covers during the day all very relatable. She is a survivor, and the brand of PTSD Julie is presenting is very aligned with that of a rape victim. The fact that Ben Willis's supposed murder took place on the night she lost her virginity to Ray, who was actually driving the car that killed Ben, makes that an unmissable comparison. Julie is woken by the sound of the front door closing. The color of the room is totally devoid of warmth. It's only blue night. She jumps out of bed, attempts to turn on a light, whose bulb burns out as she tries. She gets a knife from her bedside table and stalks into the hall, cleavage leading the way. Someone should tell her that knives are the worst weapon because they can be turned on you too easily. Take it from me, you're better off throwing a lamp. She finds the culprit. It's Carla, her roommate played by Brandy. Julie nearly stabs her to death in the process, but all is well in the end. Carla forces Julie to get dressed and go out. One of many times, Carla unwittingly acts as a kind of enabling arm of the killer, a.k.a. the patriarchy. Later, the four are on an island in the Bahamas, the four being Carla and her boyfriend Tyrell, Julie, and Will. Ray is still en route, like a fairy tale prince winning his place in Julie's heart only through obstacles and loss. Julie has found her first body, but predictably it was removed when she went to get her friends to show them. They all think she is crazy, so let the gaslighting begin. Julie is coming to think, or perhaps hope, she is crazy. She does insist that she leave the island only to be informed that the last boat has already left. It's storm season. I have to say that I love the trapped on an island during a storm setup of this sequel. It reminds me of Key Largo and Fog Island, just with less mystery and more murder. Carla and Julie go to the hotel gym to work out. Pushed, of course, by Carla into this activity, Julie is less than thrilled. Carla then leads Julie to a tanning bed, convincing Julie this will help her feel better. 
Still being gaslit, Julie acquiesces and begins to take off her gray sweatshirt and black spandex shorts. This part is teased like she is going to get naked in the bed, which as someone who has tanned before, you definitely do. Julie, on the other hand, doesn't go nude, but instead wears an adorable dark blue gingham bikini. It looks like it was from the Limited. Julie lays blissfully unaware listening to her yellow Sony Sport Walkman, hoping she really is crazy and that there was no dead body. As she floats off into delusion, the killer, or killers, zip ties the lid of the tanning bed to the base, trapping her in the bed, but not before cranking up the heat. Okay, so for those of us that tanned in the 90s, and yes, drank Diet Coke while doing it, this is a nightmare scenario. It's akin to what the psycho shower scene did for taking a shower. Every girl that got in a tanning bed after seeing this had that fear. But I would also like to point out that tanning bed controls are almost always on the inside. They do not place them on the outside of the machine, probably to avoid tempting serial killers. Julie screams her head off as she realizes she is trapped and being baked alive. Her friends come to her rescue. They have all found bodies while she was trapped tanning, so they finally believe her. But they still can't figure out how to cut a fucking zip tie, so they smash the bed open with a hand weight. This obviously is the most dangerous way to free someone from a glass-bulbed tanning bed. But she does get out, and the first thing she says, or screams, is, God, I'm not crazy. I told you I was not crazy. That's right, honey, you aren't crazy, but people will say you are right up until their death because you're a woman and you don't matter. Meanwhile, Freddie Prince Jr. as Ray is making good on being a man. His hero's journey has taken him from road trip to near fatal run-in with the killer. He ended up hospitalized, but then he still rose up, left the hospital, took a Greyhound bus, and bought a gun. He takes that gun and holds up the boathouse guy who refuses to take him to the island Julie is on in the hurricane. He captains the boat himself through choppy waters and physical injury until he arrives to rescue or at least witness Julie and finally be accountable for the danger he put her in. This fairy tale esque journey Ray goes on isn't just about rescuing Julie or honoring their love. It's a coming of age story for him. He is becoming a man. Julie's womanhood formed long before Ray fucked her on the beach two summers ago. She was just waiting for him to meet her where she was. Ray takes responsibility for not keeping Julie safe in the first place. He hit Ben. He was driving the car. He didn't stand up for Julie when Barry made them all agree to dump the body and keep it a secret. He let her do something against her own will. That is the epitome of a rape parable. Thank you for listening. I'm Madeline Jane Auble, and this was my very special Santa Ana Wins Halloween episode. Please like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple or Spotify and check out Window Dressing's Instagram page at Window Dressing Podcast for more content and updates on the coming season of Window Dressing.